0: Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, "'Where will you have us prepare it?' He said to them, "'Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, "'The teacher says to you, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there.' And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Clayton. Well, uh, I I have to say I am surprised with how many of you actually made it through the snowstorm, so that's encouraging. Uh, Not that you came to hear me, but it's just good to see all of you. Um, For the last several weeks, if you've been around, we have been looking at Bible passages that have to do with eating We've been seeing the ways that God can work miracles around the dinner table, and we realize that many of the miracles in the biblical story involve food or the provision of food. Jesus used meals to heal, to reconcile, to invite people to join what it was that God was doing in their midst. We, as his followers, can do that too. And we've talked about the Calvary is a church that loves to eat together and loves to serve together. And in these ways, we can follow after our Lord We have a few weeks left in the first phase of our year-long hospitality practice, which is to invite people over who you're comfortable with or whom you have had over before. If you haven't done that yet, uh, and some of us are unable to just for different circumstances, but if you're able to or you've been thinking about it, I do encourage you, uh, strongly urge you to set aside a dinner time or two before the end of the month uh, and have someone over that you're comfortable with. And if you have, and I know that many of us have been, uh, doing this. I hope that it's been a blessing and an encouragement and um, I just urge you to continue doing that here for the next couple of weeks before we switch, uh, roll over to the next phase. And this morning we are bringing our Eating with People series to an end with eating with enemies or feasting with enemies. Now I would hope that most of us don't have a very long list of people that we would consider enemies, but we all have people that make our lives a little harder, who require extra patience and forgiveness, who grate on us like human sandpaper. And if you don't feel like you're, you have any of those people, that may mean that you are one of those people, but <clears throat> really, you think about the group of people that you wouldn't want to eat dinner with, the very last people that you would want to invite into your home. But God may have something for us in hosting our enemies, and having enemies to dinner is near to his heart, as we will see. And our sermon summary for this morning is this: you can't have a monster over for dinner. You can't have a monster over for dinner. And and the idea there is, for the most part, we can only view other people as monsters or as as particularly uh, bad if we keep them at arm's length. It's harder, it gets harder to continue to hate people or continue to, to hold them as your enemy when you've shared a meal with them. And I'll share a story about that towards the end. Eating with your enemy reminds you of your common humanity and your common need for Jesus. It's a humanizing thing uh, to eat together. In our passage, we see that Jesus, on the night of Passover, broke bread with the devil, fully knowing that one of his closest friends was about to betray him. And our responsive reading this morning came from Luke chapter 19, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, what we call the triumphal entry. It was triumphal because people were celebrating. They were shouting out to him, they were waving palm branches, they were putting cloaks down on the ground uh, for the donkey to ride over. It was a clear uh, signal that Jesus was, was saying that he was the Messiah. Now, of course, he doesn't say that, but you know, the whole thing is he is the heir of David riding into the city, and people are celebrating that. And the city was thrown into an uproar. And we know that Passover was often a time of turmoil in Jerusalem in the years before this, because Passover was about being rescued from an evil empire, and during Jesus' life, of course, it wasn't Egypt, but it was Rome who, who uh, oppressed and controlled the uh, Isra- Israelites. And so Passover was often a time where people would try and start rebellions. So it was already tense, then Jesus does this, and he, he rides into, into the city as a triumphant king. And the fervor only increases when Jesus makes his way to the temple and proceeds to clear it out. He flips the tables over, he whips people, and he drives these merchants uh, who had been charging exorbitantly high prices for sacrificial animals and these different kind of things going on, he drives them all out of the temple. If any of the religious leaders were in doubt about Jesus, this act of clearing the temple settled the matter in their minds. This is really where it clicks. Um, and the different gospels reflect this in different ways that from then on, they were determined to kill him, uh, that Jesus had to go. So we see that Jesus is surrounded by enemies, but he goes to the temple boldly anyway every day, and he teaches people about the kingdom of God. And as chapter 22 opens, Jesus' enemies are circling. It's the night of Passover Passover. The story of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt is hovering in the background. It's heavy in the air. This is the night of a new Passover with a new enemy king, a new people of God, and a new Passover lamb. And we see something kind of remarkable happen at the beginning of the passage that it says that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. I think part of what's happening there is that Jesus' spiritual and human enemies more or less kind of joined forces together. In Judas. It wasn't just humans, other people that were opposing Jesus. It wasn't just the spiritual powers of evil that were opposing Jesus, but they were now working together uh, in this man, in this disciple. And I think it's worth pointing out that Satan did not choose a disciple at random. Like it wasn't like Judas was just the nearest at hand when it was time to possess someone. Throughout the Gospels, we see these little hints that that Judas was more or less acting in opposition to Jesus. Uh, the entire time and of course we don't know you know his interior state or what he was thinking but it seems like from the very beginning he didn't well none of them got it but Judas didn't get it in a in a I think particularly uh, wicked way Um, so Judas was selfish and deceitful in these different things and he he never really um, identified I think with Jesus in the way that the other disciples had so the devil saw his opportunity and he possesses Judas and we see in these opening verses that Judas and Jesus are both busy with preparations. So Judas goes and he meets with the, the religious authorities and they make up a scheme to get Jesus on his own away from the crowds. At the same time, Jesus is sending Peter and John into the city to make ready this Passover meal. Both plans on a collision course. And one of the realities that all four gospels want us to come to understand is that in the death of Jesus on the cross, the plans of the father and the devil came crashing together. In killing Jesus, the devil thought that he was winning, right? That this was the decisive thing, he was going to kill the Messiah, it would be over. The fact was that his scheming and all of these humans' scheming was a part of God's plan to save the world. I think that's a message of good news for us all on its own. Some of us are going through really awful circumstances uh, that feel like they've been thrown at us by the devil himself, just things that are just grinding away at us or just terrible things that are going on in our lives. But I think that we can take heart and comfort in the fact that God has not abandoned any of us uh, to those circumstances, that in some mysterious way, and it's not really comforting, but I think it is the truth, that in some mysterious way, whatever the enemy does, it is included in the Father's good plan for each one of us. So we see these plans being set up. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. The Passover, the the night that God invited rebellious Israel to his dinner table. The night that Pharaoh and the might of Egypt's gods were brought to their knees by God's power over life and death. Back in Exodus, and if you were with us last fall, we, we preached through all these different stories. Back in Exodus, Pharaoh first sought out to wipe out the firstborn sons of Israel, and then later all of Israel. Here in Luke... The enemy is after the firstborn son of God to kill him and thereby enslave all humankind forever. So it's like the Passover, but the stakes have all been raised on this night with Jesus in the Last Supper. Little did the enemy realize that in striking Jesus, his own head would be crushed. The devil's greatest triumph, Jesus hanging dead from a cross, was actually the first act in his complete and final defeat. Not only would Jesus rise again, but his Holy Spirit would be poured out to create a new people of God, free from the powers of darkness. And in the same way, I think we can take comfort that every attack on God's people, every disease or bombing form of oppression and persecution, these things are real, they hurt, they're terrible, and no one is saying that we shouldn't feel badly about them or pretend that they're not happening. But I think we can take comfort that the Lord is with us in those different circumstances and is bringing them all together for our good and his glory. The enemy can only do what the Lord allows him to. So all this is happening. They sit down at the table in verse 14, and it says, When the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It should not surprise us that Jesus was looking forward to eating this meal with his guys. The man loved dinners. And he takes the familiar celebration of the Passover and he kind of explains what it's really been about this entire time. He talks about, you know, if you read the different gospel stories, we know that lambs, slaughtering these lambs, could never actually take away sin. We know that no one has actually been obedient to the law. There, is, there has been no good Israelite. All men and women fall short, except for Jesus. He is the good son, the good human, the faithful and obedient Israelite that none of the rest of us could ever be. It is his body that is broken, his blood poured out. The powers of sin were were shouldered by Jesus. The weight of the consequences of the things that we have done was placed on him. And God destroyed it right there in the broken, broken flesh of Jesus on the cross. Its power is spent, its authority over us is canceled Jesus says in verse 20 that this cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, covenant is one of those Bible words that we often hear but maybe don't always know exactly what it's talking about. And it really just means a contract or an agreement or terms of a partnership. When you install new software on your computer or your phone and it tells you to read that box and click agree, that's a covenant. It's one that we don't read and often break, but it's a covenant nonetheless. Covenants established the relationship between two or more parties, but they were also for something, right? There was a result that was supposed to flow from the making of this covenant. Ancient people, just like us, entered into covenants for business, marriage, political loyalty, all kinds of things. God's new covenant with us is for us to make his kingdom known through our lives and for him to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we tell of the kingdom by sharing the gospel, by serving, by repenting honestly of our sin, by raising families in the fear of the Lord, being disciplined in prayer and Bible meditation, suffering patiently, being part of a church, making decisions about money and technology and consumption that honor the Lord. And God brings the kingdom. He saves people. He heals relationships. He provides for our needs. He protects us from harm. He transforms us to reflect more of his glory. And I think sometimes it's helpful to think of the kingdom and the way that the kingdom comes in different ways. I think sometimes it's helpful to think of the kingdom coming down, that God makes heaven and earth overlap and that kind of takes place at the same time. I think sometimes it's good to think of the of him revealing the kingdom, the good reality behind which our world is sort of a ripped curtain and for a moment he pulls it back and you see what's really going on. And I think sometimes it's good and helpful to think of the kingdom As God taking a little bit of the future, the universe, resurrected a new creation and planting it here in our present. But however you think of it, the kingdom covenant, the new covenant partnership is not be a good person and then you'll go to heaven. It is also not be a good person and God will prevent any bad things from happening to you. I think those are stories that we often tell and that often run in the background of our minds, but this covenant that we've entered into with God is not either one of those things. God's desire is for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven through the faithful lives of his people, and that includes our faithful uh, suffering and struggles and this is important to draw out and the reason why I wanted to draw this out is because if we don't understand what God is trying to do in the world it will never make any sense why we should ever eat with our enemies if we don't understand what God is doing in the world it will never make any sense why we would eat with our enemies if our faith is about being good people then we shouldn't spend time mixing with bad people if our faith is about protection from harm then why would we expose ourselves to people who could potentially hurt us Those are good questions to ask, it's just that you're in the wrong story. The fact that Jesus did this dinner, said these things, with Judas sitting at the table, speaks volumes about what the kingdom of God is like. Now, Jesus, as we saw at the end of the the verses there, he says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. It's not that Jesus is particularly uh, pleased with Judas or anything like that, but he's still there at the table. Jesus has not rescinded that invitation So we see in verse 21, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And there again is the plan of the Father. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. Throughout his life, Jesus kept his enemies close. When you read the stories in the Gospels, One of the things that you may notice is that there just always seems to be Pharisees around. Like, they're just always around. And you'd think that at some point, they would be like, go away. (laughs) You don't like any of us. You know, you hate it when we party. Like, go be sad somewhere else. Now, often they stayed at the edge of the party. We've seen that in different stories, but not because Jesus sent them there. And I think that Jesus knew that Judas was possessed (laughs) by the devil. He knew what he was going to do but he shared food with them anyway. And the good news for us is that Jesus eats with his enemies all the time. He's made a habit of it. At the Passover, the Lord sat the Israelites down at his table and turned them into his special people. On Sinai, the Lord ate with the elders of Israel to confirm the covenant that they would then break days later. Every time an Israelite family would bring a fellowship offering to the temple, they and the priests would eat that meal together with the Lord. He sent manna from heaven, quail from different parts of the world to feed them in the wilderness, despite the fact that they continually rebelled. Jesus went to eat dinner at Pharisees' houses. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. In early church gatherings, Paul and the other apostles sat ethnic, economic, and political enemies down together at the same table and told them to break bread together. Each of us were once enemies of God, opposed to his goodwill in the world. Some of us may still be. The invitation remains open. Every person, no matter what you've done, or how you've rebelled, or how the consequences of your decisions remain with you, everyone is welcome. To place their faith in Jesus and to follow his ways. By God's grace, Calvary and most churches in America have not and likely will not face different situations that our brothers and sisters face in churches around the world. We are usually not in physical danger. That happens occasionally here, but thankfully, by the mercy of God, not very often. But it does in other places. However, the absence of danger in our our situation does not excuse us from reaching out to our enemies with kindness and the love of God. Who are your enemies? Hopefully the list is short. And I was asking different people as I was preparing this message, you know, who would you say your enemies are? (laughs) And, you know, I think in in, in honest moments, I think we would probably have a few people that we we would be able to produce if you're like me and you tend to have mental fights with people sometimes, and you always win, of course, but the folks that you have those mental fights with, they could go on the list, right? Or the people that you see and you groan inside, and you go, oh, no, them. Or how about this? Who would consider you an enemy? We can't, that can't be known, maybe, but people you have wronged people you've treated poorly? Or how about people that we are often told to think of as enemies, but that aren't actually? We think of people of different political leanings, and think of Muslims, immigrants, people in the gay community. How can we regard these people, whether they're actual enemies or not, but I think we respond to them like they are often and to our shame, but how can we regard these people in the grace of Jesus' victory over sin and death? How can we put into practice Jesus' way of eating with enemies? If the Lord grants you a chance, and this is is kind of an odd sermon because I feel like the application is up to him. I'm not just because I'm not telling myself this, I don't think any of us need to go seek out the people that we hate and say, come on over to dinner. But I think that if the opportunity arises by some relational miracle, take it. For some of us, there's different family gatherings happening this weekend. Some of those people we might consider enemies or adversaries. Easter family gatherings are an excellent time to eat with our enemies. And I'm not encouraging us to be unwise, right? I would not preach the sermon at a church in China and tell the brothers and sisters to go find the religious police and uh, eat with them. The world really is dangerous, right? It is actually going to kill each one of us at some point. There are people who want to harm us, like these things are true. But I think Jesus wants us to live as if he really is alive. That he really still is in control of all things. If Christ is our Lord, church, then fear cannot be. As many of you know, I lived in China for two years and tried to share the gospel as often as I could. Uh, and Longzhou looked like that for like a week out of every year, so I'm glad they managed to get that picture on the, uh, on the internet. Sharing the gospel is illegal in that country, and so we had to be very careful. The Chinese government listened to our phone calls, they read our emails, they occasionally dug through our trash. They may hear this, I don't think so, but you never know. One of the ways they watched us was through our language teachers. In my second year there, we had a teacher named Mrs. Wong, whose preferred method of teaching was to shout at me until I started speaking Chinese out of desperation for her to leave me alone. <laughs> I mean, it worked. I did learn how to speak Chinese, so... She was rude, impatient, made it very clear that we went, when, we, when we went to campus to do ministry, they were watching us on the security cameras. It was very difficult not to hate Mrs. Wong, and to consider her my enemy. But you know what helped? Eating with her. It was hard to hate her when she paid for food. (laughs) It was hard to hate her when she gave me tips for how to use chopsticks better. It was hard to hate her as we chatted about normal life, and she showed us pictures of her son. The enemy was there at the table. Now, we did not become friends. I never actually, you know, started liking her or wanting to spend time with her. But I couldn't keep thinking about her as a monster after sharing meals with her. Now, whether you ever have enemies over for dinner or not, and, you know, again, maybe if the opportunity isn't granted to you, then, you know, don't beat yourself up about it. But whether you do or not, my encouragement for you this morning is to treat them as if you have is to, in your imagination, sit those people down at your table and serve them food that you have made without poison or anything else that's going to harm them. You can't have monsters over for dinner. And so when you do have your monstrous boss or co-workers or terrible neighbors or idiot family or whoever it happens to be, it does get harder to think of them as monsters. They have to eat, same as you. They struggle through life, the same as you. As the Lord leads in wisdom and righteousness, have your enemies over for dinner and find out how the Lord is working in their lives to draw them to Jesus. Jesus makes a curious promise in this passage two times, and I'll close with this thought. In verse 15, he gives him the bread, and he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In verse 18, he says, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There's a lot that could be said about these verses, but uh, this is the end of the sermon, so I'm not going to say very much. But I think that it is a promise that the end of our story is a good one, that Jesus is saving the best for last. The invitations are still going out. The Father's guest list is not complete. In the meantime, church, let us continue to eat with people friends and neighbors, foreigners, strangers, the poor, the rich, perhaps even our enemies. And as we do, let us look forward in hope and expectation to the great day when the Lord Jesus himself sits us down at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we are again thankful for this day. Lord, we do ask that you would grant us the courage and the compassion we need. Lord, that as you give us opportunities, perhaps to actually have an enemy over for dinner, Lord, or even just to interact with them. Lord, we pray that we would do that in a way that is good and that honors the Lord. Father, I pray that we would remember that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord over all things. That does not mean that everything's going to go our way or that everything's going to go well. It didn't for him. They did wind up killing him. But I pray, Lord, that we would trust him, trust you in the midst of difficult relationships and having to deal with difficult people. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.